Big Dumb Movie is a comedic podcast that often contains obscene language and outlandish commentary. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Big Dumb Movie, where we discuss movies of the Big Dumb variety. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm joined today by my friend, Steve. I want to be introduced as Nosferatu. You got it. Nosferatu. Here I am. (laughs) In a speaking role for the first time in his career. (laughs) And secondly, my other good friend, the review dude, Josh. This is my vampire, like, show my fangs to the camera. (laughs) You guys are fucking me up here, okay? Just say hello. <laughs> Vampire. <laughs> Vampire. <laughs> so we are continuing our exploration of the scariest movies we could find for October. Is that what we're doing? I mean, we're watching October movies for sure. <laughs> there's, some, there's some scary things about this film. <laughs> <laughs> like the pre-production? Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> Uh, but this time, of course, we're talking about Queen of the Damned. You know that. You clicked on this episode. This is a movie that I cannot discuss without revealing some truly embarrassing details about my life. <laughs> it's just not possible, okay? So with that in mind, I need you guys to go first. I need Josh and Steve here to tell me some embarrassing shit about their lives in their high school era, because this is a high school era movie for me, and I'm... It's gonna, it's gonna get cringy, y'all. I'm just warning you. <laughs> oh, yeah, it so, serves you right. Every detail about my life is embarrassing. <laughs> true, I can confirm. Right. Josh, why don't you go first? Like, what were you into in high school that you might consider to be a little bit embarrassing? All right, I'm gonna try and paint a picture for you. Imagine shaggy, unkempt hair, blue jeans, and a blue jean jacket, and just some <sighs> random T-shirt. Going around with a camera just begging people to be in videos with me. <laughs> Listening to shit like, you know, Corn, Disturb, Limp Biscuit. Oh, I've heard of those bands. They might be relevant to this discussion. <laughs> yeah. I was also, like, super into, like, conspiratorial stuff. Like, uh, I didn't realize it at the time how, like, crazy Alex Jones was. But I watched him. <laughs> Uh, Josh, we're glad you're better. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Josh, the cringiest thing I th- was an Alex Jones fan. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Welcome back to the world. I know, right? <laughs> and I think the cringiest thing I probably listened to was the the Cottonmouth Kings. Ooh. Oh yeah. That's not as bad as I was thinking. You know, yeah. I think I could have been worse, Josh. So. All right, all right. Now, keep in mind, this is a long time ago. We are well out of high school. Steve, why don't you go next? The most well out of high school. (laughs) (laughs) So I I never graduated from high school. That's a lie. I graduated. I graduated. I mean, I I was very much a child of the 80s and 90s, so I embraced things that I still love, but that would probably be looked at now as some of the worst parts of the 90s, like jeans that were five times too wide for your legs. Jinko. Jinkos. I had some Jinkos. Um, I had some other brands as well, that, that the big, huge legs. My mother used to call men's bell bottoms for the 90s. <laughs> uh, I had a chain wallet, big, long chain wallet at one point. I, the chain on that thing must have been at least 14 inches. Then they banned those from school because people were, like, choking each other with them. <laughs> um, you know, I was into all the 90s, the 90s tropes, really. I, I uh, once, once at about 17, I'm pretty sure I did put um, some frosty highlights in the front of my hair. 
which is a very 90s thing. I yeah. had the pierced ear, you know. Just so, frost the tip, baby. Just frost the tip. Man, it was it was a fun time, the, the mid to late 90s, I think. There was definitely a lot of gothiness around at the time as well. Definitely. But, yeah. It was getting cool. Much like Josh, I also spent a lot of time like dorking out with cameras and, and just basically uh, doing things that would guarantee I, I wouldn't have any friends. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing. Making movies in high school was, was pretty cool. But as I got older in high school, I got more edgy, you know? I'm also going to paint a picture. Me in high school in the later years, long greasy hair, you know, a lot of band t-shirts. I was wearing ripped up jeans like carryover from the 90s because I thought that was cool. Eyeliner. I like to wear eyeliner uh, because my grunge icon heroes did, namely Kurt Cobain. But, you know, I was very much into that. But in terms of music I listened to, not only did I listen to the 90s rock that I grew up on, I was really into new metal. Really into new metal. Yeah. Now, here's a little bit embarrassing, but I still somewhat am to a lesser degree. I listen to some of it when I work out sometimes. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but I listen to Disturbed, Linkin Park, Static X, a little bit of Corn, uh, System of a Down, Limp Biscuit. I System like, of a Down is really good, though. I still listen to System of a Down. Like, Agreed. genuinely, they're really good. Some of these bands I'm name, naming right now have staying power. Yeah. Linkin Park had staying power. They were a new metal band in a very big way because they had this screamer that also sang. They had rap, and they had a DJ. They had yeah. all the tropes of a new metal band. They, they and Papa Roach may have been, like, the most defining members of that new metal movement. In that They were the ones inserting the rap tracks. I was never a fan of theirs, but I can't deny they were clearly massively popular. Papa Roach was hugely popular, but they virtually had no staying power. Yeah, yeah, it's true. This sounds a lot like the, the music I listened to, Corey. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> the thing is, though, like, that was supposedly the popular fad of that time, right? Yeah. I knew, like, one other person that liked new Metal. It was not mainstream to like new Metal. Very much contradictory to what history will tell you. Well, I wonder if it's just... Because you're not that much younger than me, but I wonder if it's just that two or three years difference. Because, like, I can remember junior, senior high school, at least where I was going to high school. It was fucking massive. It was massive. I mean, there were corn shirts and Fred Durst red ball caps fucking everywhere at the high schools I went to. Okay. But but that was... I graduated in 2001, so, you know, you fast forward two or three years, that may have been enough for the fad to sort of disappear. I don't know, maybe it didn't last long, because yeah. I was class of 04, right. and I was into this stuff in 03. Right. 02, even. Maybe it's just a community thing, you know, some, some neighborhoods or something, you get a larger group of people. I don't know what. I'm just guessing here. I'm going to keep going, though. I'm not done, okay? Right. <laughs> I had a disturbed visor. So, you know, like a hat without the top part of the hat? Your hair <laughs> now, that's a very late 90s thing. <laughs> Absolutely. It's just funny to me that, like, this, like, metal band, it's like, yeah, let's make some fucking visors. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Visor. Dude, the, 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 the noise, the monkey noise he had to make in every single song. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, the, even if you had no idea what Disturbed was, you'd know every song that was his. <laughs> I think they definitely had their own, like, distinct sound that separated them, and that was probably a huge part of it. But also, David Draymond, the singer Disturbed, is a good singer. He legitimately is, and I will stick to that till I die, or at least for maybe... I'm, a I'm not years. a. I was never a fan of the band, but I will definitely concede that he was great at that kind, at least at that kind of vocal performance. And yeah, I'd agree with you also that they were probably the most distinct of the new metal acts. Mm-hmm. I, you know, a lot of the rest of them sounded a lot like each other 
and Disturbed was probably the only one of the group that at least sounded like they were trying to do something a little different. Right, there it. were bands like Edema that right. kind of just like got lost in the shuffle because it's <laughs> right. just like okay, another one of these bands. You right. Know? Um, there was a band called Him that was popularized oh, by Bam yeah. Margera. I just brought him up in conversation with someone else a couple days ago. Yeah, that's a, it's an act that was long forgotten. Yeah, but yeah. They, were, they were hugely popular. I've seen them live like three times. A yeah. lot of these bands I've seen live right. many a time, more than once on most of them. <laughs> so I used to play the the game Mortal Kombat Deadly Alliance, and Edema <laughs> did a song specifically for that game. What year was that? Oh, I think it was like 2002, maybe. Yeah, it sounds right. Yeah, and it, like you could watch the music video on the disc. Oh, it was just, it was so bad, so I, bad. I, the new metal stuff never never got me. I don't know why. I mean, I liked a lot of the other hard rock bands. That were, I'm a huge Tool fan, you know, uh, and a lot of those other acts. But yeah, the new metal stuff just never clicked for me for whatever reason. Tool had staying power, but they came out before New Metal, and they oh, lasted long after New Metal. Yeah, I mean they've been around since the late '80s, and Maynard's had other side projects like Perfect Circle as well. Yeah, that yeah, that act. Right. Yeah. That, exactly. There, that act has got a lot of staying power, and uh, the one I was a big fan of that I don't think you liked was Stone Temple Pilots. I loved. No, SDK. I loved grunge. Right. Big time grunge fan, and Stone Temple Pilots was one of the. Big grunge acts. Yeah. I've seen them live yeah. several times, too, yeah. before Wyland passed away. Yeah, God, I miss Wyland, man. He was so great. And he was one of the most amazing frontmen I've ever seen in right. a band live. They were super talented. They were one of those acts. I have always called them the Blade Runner of grunge music, because in the era when they were recording their music, a lot of the critical reviews were very lukewarm or even negative. And in years since then, a lot of the critics and, and even other musicians have come around, including... Billy Corgan. Billy Corgan was hugely critical of them back in the early and mid-90s, and in years later, he, he referred to Scott Weiland as being one of the defining grunge voices of that generation. So, yeah, I mean, them and I loved them in uh, Nirvana and Soundgarden. Soundgarden course, was yeah. so good. <laughs> Fuck, man. I went and watched uh, 311 Live <laughs> in my sophomore <laughs> year. <laughs> Yeah, God. I kind of fell off with the post-grunge alternative rock bands like 311, uh, somewhat. I mean, some of them I, I kind of listened to, but yeah. it seems like when Kurt Cobain died, the music changed, you know? There was a distinct change in the way alternative rock was being presented in, like, MTV and things like that. Yeah, I think the only ones that beat that were the guy, the groups like Soundgarden and Jane's Addiction that had already been around for a while. But you're right, the newer Even stuff... Even they started to transform. You got the... Uh, Chris Cornell moved on to... Uh, he was in, um, he did a couple solo albums, but he also did that project with the guys from uh, Rage. Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. And uh, that's, God, I love that album. Audio too. Slave. Audio Slave. Thank you. It was a really good album. Yeah. But I mean, even then, that, if you listen to that Audio Slave album, it, in a good way, it almost does sound like it could have been a product of the, the mid or late 90s. I can see it to some degree. Yeah. But going back to what I was saying, one of the things I liked in high school that I thought was so cool and edgy and sexy was. <laughs> vampires yeah i love vampires i loved the idea of this kind of vampire from this movie right right so i like the sexy vampire <laughs> i wanted to get my teeth impression and get fangs <laughs> that's how fucking cringe i was i wanted to wear fangs around just around town with my <laughs> eyeliner and my long hair and my black him shirt, you know? So I knew, I knew someone who did that. Like Gangrel from wrestling? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted to be Gangrel. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm a huge fan also of um, post-punk and, and new wave from the 80s. And there's a little bit of crossover with some of the... Like if you go to Depeche Mode concerts, 
you know, especially mid late eighties, Depeche Mode, there was an interesting crossover. And then you get bands like uh, the cure, the cure were kind of like the goth band of the, the new or the, they yeah, had the new wave post-punk movement. I really love them. They were right. great. I think the new metal style, not the style of music, but the, uh, the fashion style is kind of influenced from that era of yeah. late 80s. Yeah, I think that they were like new wave for the 90s for the kids who weren't into the new wave. You know, and I preferred the 80s stuff, but definitely a lot of kids were the other direction. Yeah. Absolutely. So suffice to say, I loved this fucking movie when it came out. It had my music. It had my aesthetic. Right. It didn't have a good story, but I didn't give a fuck, you know? I mean, back then, I liked anything, you know? Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you about that. I, I, The sexy vampire bit could go a little far for me, but I, I've always been really fond of, like, gothic horror and vampire stuff, and, and the general aesthetic of this movie worked very well for me, despite its flaws at the time. Uh. Josh, where were you at on vampires when you were but a teen? <laughs> but a teen? Well, around the time I was a teen... Twilight was big. I don't know Oof. if you guys are familiar with that series. I wish I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I went the other direction. I was like, you know, fuck your vampires. And I would kidnap Twilight fans and show them Dust Till Dawn. And I would tell them this is a vampire movie, you know? <laughs> so I was I was there with it. I see. What's are you still favorite? at large for those crimes? Right. <laughs> Currently, there's no evidence tying me to anything, so... <laughs> Except for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Twilight did give us my favorite actor, my favorite working actor, I should say, Robert Pattinson. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the films are responsible for, for booting his career, yeah. which I'm, He's a good actor, I'm glad for that, I'm excited about Batman, but God, those movies are fucking dumb. Can we all agree he's a great actor before we move on? Oh, Absolutely. He's a very good actor. Okay, yeah. Confirmation. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Queen of the Damned. Steve. Queen of the Damned. How the hell was this movie made? Holy fucking shit. So, all right. I'll try to compress this as much as I can. Real quick, Anne Rice. Anne Rice is an author. She wrote many books. She still writes. This movie was really the combination of two of her books first book she ever got published was Interview with the Vampire, came out in 76, became very popular very quickly. She wrote two sequels to it pretty shortly thereafter. One was called The Vampire Lestat, the second was called Queen of the Damned. At some point, I think during the very early 80s, a production company called Lorimar bought the rights to Interview with the Vampire, The Vampire Lestat, and Queen of the Damned. They bought the rights to all three books. The film rights? The film rights, okay. yeah. Yeah, not, not the publication rights of the books themselves, but you're right, the film rights for, the, for them. They also bought the rights to three other non-related Anne Rice books that are about some witches. Um, so this company, Lorimar Productions, buys, them, buys the film rights in the early 80s and then doesn't get a chance to do anything with them. Warner Brothers acquires Lorimar Productions in 1988, and the film rights to these books become part of the bundle. Warner starts pretty quickly working on a movie adaptation of Interview with the Vampire, they end up getting a script. They end up getting a director, Neil Jordan, who also directed another vampire movie called Byzantium that I think is one of the best vampire movies that's ever been filmed. They make the movie with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt playing the lead characters, Louis and Lestat. becomes a huge, huge deal. comes out in 94. Interview the, with the Vampire. Interview with the Vampire. Amazing movie, by the way. It is a very I good love one. It. It's, it, it's very very different than the feel of this movie yeah interview with the vampire it, well it's mostly a period piece but also like 
it has this sweeping epic storytelling feel yeah. to it. A lot of it's attributed to it being like in flashbacks, but right. it feels like Gone with the Wind or something. Like it, it has like an epic feel to it. Yeah, and it makes this adaptation that much more disappointing because the three books, Interview with the Vampire, or The Vampire Lestat, and Queen of the Damned, were really supposed to be one giant kind of operatic vampire saga, sort of in the vein of a Gone of the Gone with the Wind. And if they'd done the second two books properly, it would have come out way cooler. But when the movie, when Interview with the Vampire became a huge success very quickly and was very well critically reviewed, made a lot of money, was nominated for Academy Awards, they decided pretty much immediately that they wanted to make a sequel. So they got Neil Jordan, the director of Interview, to start working on a script adaptation of the second book, The Vampire Lestat, for them. I don't know what happened. Um, I've never found any information. Somebody out there probably knows, or maybe it's just somewhere I haven't looked. But for whatever reason, Neil Jordan's attempt to get the second film rolling just didn't happen. I would actually really like to see some like a like American Psycho esque character piece with Lestat. I think that would yeah that would really be cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think part of the problem is that the book is told in a in a kind of episodic form. It it ends up bouncing back and forth between what different characters are doing over the same four day period, even when they're not doing things with each other and. It was very difficult to adapt. I know that that played a part in the way that this developed later, but Jordan Jordan couldn't get the script going and and couldn't get it, the production going, and it collapsed. And four years goes by, and in 98, the people in charge at Warner Brothers, I guess somebody reminded them or they realized that the agreement they'd inherited between Anne Rice's publishers and Lorimar Productions had a had a... Uh, a special, time limit? Yeah, time limit, yeah. That basically to say that after the year 2000, I don't know exactly what month or day, but after some point during the year 2000, uh, Warners was going to lose the right to produce any more movies based on these stories. And they decided that they really, really wanted to just try to get something, something made. Right. I think that is the case when a lot of studios buy an IP. Yeah. The contract normally stipulates that you can make movies about this IP for this amount of time, but if you don't make a movie within this amount of time, you lose the rights. Yeah, yeah, and there are other instances where they get weird loopholes that'll say that, like, you can keep the rights as long as you use the characters. Every It's like, it's, that's why Roger Corman's Fantastic Four got made. So right. They could keep the rights for a certain amount of time long. It's very weird how these work. A but. movie had to be made in order for them to keep the movie rights, essentially. Yeah. So that's why that's, that one got made. Right. That's why The Amazing Spider-Man happened. Right. And that one, man, that's another one. James Cameron tried to get a Spider-Man movie made for years during the early 90s. That would have been really interesting. But uh, but yeah, and in this case, in this case, Warner knew they were just going to lose the rights entirely if they didn't get something made. by Either way, they were going to lose the rights in 2000. And um, they brought in some writers, uh, no one I'm fam- really familiar with, uh, no one I think is really worth mentioning, but they brought in some writers and they found that the Lestat book was very, very difficult to turn into a coherent screenplay. And they were worried they wouldn't be able to compress it properly into something two and a half hours or less, which they're right about. They never could have. But they made an even worse decision in trying to fix this, which was to take the second two books, The Vampire Lestat and Queen of the Damned, and cram them into a single script. And they figured that by taking chunks of either story, they could tell this this last leg of the trilogy as one combined film, and they could reformat it in a way that would be easier easier to digest but 
in doing this, they omitted and rewrote so much content that the product we've got isn't really... It's almost its own thing inspired by Rice's books. It's not a good adaptation of either book. It doesn't really properly combine the two books. There's huge story elements that are removed. There's characters that are removed. If they weren't under such pressure to get this movie made in a certain timeline, there's really no other good reason to have done things this way. It, it, they really should have made Lestat into two movies, a part one and part two, and then done an, an additional Queen of the Damned. But that's how this came about. They wanted to get something made, and they just couldn't do both. So they decided to cram the two films together. Anne Rice was so unhappy about the direction they were going when she found out they were doing this, she offered to write them a screenplay for free. And um, she was actually told by the Writers Guild she was not allowed to do that. The, the way the contracts work, she has to get paid something. So she went back and said, fine, I'll take whatever the minimum amount you're required to pay me is. I, I'll even donate the money to charity, but I'll write you a script. And, and they kept telling her, no, they didn't want it. They didn't want any input from you her. You know, Steve, this is starting to sound like a train wreck. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You, you take two books, neither of which is going to adapt into a movie well. You make a really compressed, fucked up, edited adaptation of the both of them squeezed together you ignore the writer of the original books when she says let me help you do something better <laughs> you know yeah this is definitely not not a great way to go Rice has had very weird inconsistent opinions on the movie versions of her novel but she, she did say later on that she liked Stuart Townsend as Lestat because she thought that he brought the right sort of vibe to the part but at least there's somebody <laughs> right otherwise she she did not speak very well of the film well, I, I didn't care for the movie of The Queen of the Damned at all. Uh, I begged the studio not to make that movie. I told them that the readers really didn't want that movie. What they wanted was a, was a movie based on the Vampire Lestat, the second book in the series. And the studio went on and made the movie, and the movie was not really based on my work. They used the names of the characters, but they replaced original material with material that they had written for them by a scriptwriter, and the movie was a great disappointment to most of my readers. Um, I still get letters to this day asking me why I let it happen, and of course I couldn't control it. I, there was nothing I could do. Uh, they had the right as a studio to make that movie, and, and there was nothing I could do to prevent it. The uh, director, Michael Reiner, uh, real quick, because there's not a lot to say about him, is, is was best known for a film he'd made a year before. I think this is why they took him. He, he made a, a, a movie called Perfume in 2001. It centers around a handful of people in the lead up to a huge fashion show. It had Paul Sorvino and a bunch of other people in it, Jeff Goldblum. And it was kind of a big deal movie when it came out in 01 because the dialogue was either mostly or entirely ad-libbed. There was almost no script for the dialogue. Um, and the movie won some awards and blah, blah, blah. So I think they picked him based on that because his career previous to that, had not had a whole lot of any significance in it. He hasn't had a huge movie career since this film came out, but he did direct the Battlestar Galactica miniseries for the Sci-Fi Channel, which is what they they branched the rebooted TV series off of. Yeah. Um, yeah. He also, right? He also directed a few episodes of the TV series once that went got going. Yeah, like 20-some-odd episodes. Yeah. So I think he set the tone a lot for that series right. because it's, you know, it starts with the miniseries if you're going to watch that. It's I take like it we're all fans, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. Corey and I have disagreed a little bit because I don't think it's aged very well, but I did really enjoy it when I watched it airing now. 
Uh, he's also done some episodes of American Horror Story, the television show Hannibal. He also worked on some Amazon stuff. Uh, he's done a couple episodes of uh, Man in the High Castle, which is a great show. And he did two episodes during the miniseries adaptation of um, a story called Picnic at Hanging Rock. But um, that was that's pretty much it for for him and for the background, the cast, or for the uh, the production at least. Uh, they ended up shooting the movie. This is one interesting production note. They, they, they shot the movie mostly in Australia because they got tax credit for doing it. And they used a converted biscuit factory. Uh, well, so I should say in British English, which they also mostly use in Australia, biscuit can also mean what we would call a cookie. So I'm not sure if they mean biscuits or cookies, but one or the other. They, this was like a food factory and they gutted it and turned the inside into a lot of the sets for this film, which I think was kind of funny. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, as far as pre-production, that's about it. And then, you know, we can eventually talk about Mr. Jonathan Davis's contributions. Yeah, Jonathan Davis. <laughs> right. Lead singer of Korn. He worked with a guy called Richard Gibbs to make the soundtrack and score, which they both worked on together. So it's not a soundtrack of specific music and then an independently written score. They tried to do something a little bit different. And as far as I understand, they were brought on first. That was the first thing they wanted to nail down. What kind of music they're going to do, what it's going to be like in the movie, it's going to set the tone, etc. Yeah. And one of the core points in this story is that they adapted, from, sort of adapted from the book, is that Lestat has a career as a, a rock musician, basically, and they needed somebody to, to do the music for that. Interestingly, none of his vocals are actually used in the movie. He had... He Some was, of his are in uh, the movie. Uh, virtually none, though. Seriously, if you look it up, he had an he had a record deal with Sony BMG, and for some reason, they were able to control this enough to say that we'll release you to do music for the film, but we don't want you singing on almost any of the tracks. So ninety nine percent of the tracks were even the ones that sound like should be him were actually dubbed over by other people. They used David Dryman from Disturbed. They used Chester Bennington. They used Marilyn Manson. Almost none of the songs you hear are actually his voice, even in cases where it sounds like it would be him. Right, except for the opening credits and a couple other moments in the movie. The yeah. opening credits is his version of Forsaken as opposed to David Draymond's. It is interesting that there were some contract issues with that because when I watched Jonathan Davis talk about it, he sold it completely differently. Right. He said, yeah, I wrote these songs for the movie and I wanted to bring in other singers to do it for the soundtrack. It made it seem like it was a choice yeah. rather than a, an obligation. Right. So I'm not really sure how that actually went just seems to be a little bit of conflicting info online yeah yeah i mean i i don't know i think in some of those cases the artists will say that kind of things they don't want to really admit that they didn't have that creative freedom on their own but it could <laughs> be absolutely yeah. you know so, that, that, uh, fun pre-production fact i don't know if you guys know this but Stuart townsend lestat only picked this role because he got fired from Lord of the Rings uh, like four weeks into filming, I guess. They they let him go, uh, and he had to eat. Wow. Yeah, he was going to be Aragorn. Yes. Oh, that's right. That would have been a totally different fucking thing, man. <laughs> I couldn't imagine uh, a major change like that to that film series. It's oh, like, it changes the series. For sure. You know, and it's weird in those cases because you you wouldn't really know that was the case unless the film had been... Like, if they'd made Back to the Future with um, 
God damn it, with Eric Stoltz instead of uh, yeah. Michael J. Fox. Like, obviously, it would be a much different movie, but if, if Michael J. Fox had never come in, we'd have no idea. Like, you'd have no idea how much different it would have been. All, the only version of it you'd know would be that version. It's so weird to think about these alternate variations of reality where that's the only version that would have existed, you know? Yeah, that's a variant <laughs> timeline, yeah. Right. But, uh, but yeah, and then the only other real notable part, and he's been in other stuff, but the only other really big notable part he's had in film was playing Dorian Gray in the terrible adaptation of uh, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> I was about to say that, like, it's a good thing uh, that League of Extraordinary Gentlemen's gonna, it's gonna take off. Trust yeah. me. Those graphic novels were so good. It could have been huge. If they'd done it right, that could have been huge. But it was not done right. He was in that movie Shade. Stuart oh, Townsend right. was in Shade, that poker movie. It was poker or blackjack? It was one of the two. It was like uh, poker was hot shit at the time, so it was like let's do this, let's let's keep turning out these poker movies. Yeah, there's a bunch of po- there's one with uh, Matt Damon where he's like a like a poker gambler. What's that called? Early early rounders. Mid- rounders. Thank yeah, you. There yeah. you go. That was yeah. a thing at the time. Yeah. Anyway, let's get into the actual movie, Queen of the Damned. Which starts off with a sexy voiceover by Lestat. (laughs) There comes a time for every vampire when the idea of eternity becomes momentarily unbearable. Living in the shadows, feeding in the darkness with only your own company to keep, rots into a solitary, hollow existence. Immortality seems like a good idea, until you realize you're going to spend it alone. So I went to sleep, hoping that the sounds of the passing eras would fade out and a sort of death might happen. But as I lay there, the world didn't sound like the place I had left, but something different. Better. The movie starts off by contradicting the movie it's supposed to be a sequel to, which is amazing. <laughs> First yeah. thing we do. First thing we do is just fuck up the timeline because no one's paying any attention. <laughs> what, what is he talking about, Steve? Like, what is the state of Lestat at the beginning of this movie? So, he, he's basically waking up from having been hibernating in his coffin, which is sort of... They did take that a little bit. The, in the book, in one of the books in Lestat, he had been asleep for a while, it became worthwhile to rise again as new gods were born and worshipped. Night and day, they were never alone. I would become one of them. But uh, in the movie, they, they say that he's basically been hibernating for like 200 years. And that he did so more or less because he got bored with the world and wanted to just go to sleep for a while until things had changed enough to be interesting to him. And somehow in his hibernation the year 2000 found him and and he decided it was an interesting enough era to wake up again now it's worth mentioning <laughs> he's also a fan of new metal yeah he's also a huge fan of new metal corn is really what brought him to life which is a really impressive <laughs> thing i've heard of corn doing the opposite i've never heard of them waking anybody up <laughs> but It's worth mentioning, if you've never seen, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry to be ruining the ending for you, you might want to skip the next 15 seconds if you've never seen Interview with the Vampire, but none of these films are really proper adaptations of the book, they always change stuff, the end of Interview is not the same as the end of the book, but at the end of the film, Lestat appears in, in, in a journalist's car and takes him, takes him hostage, you see Lestat at the end of the fucking movie and... 
Interview with a Vampire, I believe, takes place, it's not the year the movie came out, but I think the story takes place in either 88 or 89. They may have changed that for the film, but in the book, at least, the movie's supposed to take place, I think, in 88. And so, Lestat has been awake in the last 25 years, and yet somehow, when they start this movie, Lestat's been asleep for 200 years, as if the, the previous film didn't exist. Right. I, it was just really strange. I was wondering about that, but I was just, ah, whatever. <laughs> so yeah, right off the bat, we're pretending the previous film didn't exist, and Lestat's been asleep for 200 years. Corn has somehow woken him up like a prince's kiss. Wait, <laughs> <laughs> here's the point. I think if you're going to watch Interview with the Vampire and Queen of the Damned and like, okay, I want to watch the Anne Rice adaptation movies, uh, just expect that they're not directly connected. Pretty much not at all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, which is, if we're being fair, the case with a lot of... Louis is not mentioned one time. No. Nor are many of the other characters or any of the other characters from the, right. the movie. So it's not connected. Right, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's a whole lot of shooters. Go ahead, Josh. Antonio Banderas' character is supposed to be in this movie but it looks nothing like him, and I, I think the character himself doesn't have, like, any actual lines of dialogue. No, and they, they that's an in, one of those instances, without going into too much detail, where they, they took multiple characters from the books and, and blended them together into single people, and the Banderas character was really supposed to have a somewhat different role, and, like, in... Well, we'll talk about some more of it in a little while, but, yeah, that, that, that whole thing is real fucked up. <laughs> Yeah, so Lestat is awakened by the sound of new metal, and he decides, well, first he kills Lenny Kravitz, <laughs> ending that era of alternative rock music. Right. <laughs> and then he joins this new metal band that he finds. His intro scene where he's like singing, sitting on the, the half-stack amp, martial amps. Ugh. To me, it appears that he is, his look is directly inspired by the lead singer of him, Vili Vallow. Like, it is just a one-to-one -one of that guy. Yeah, although I would say I think he took that look largely because that was just, like, how do you even explain it? The, the kind of semi-goth, new metal, 1960s-inspired, like, romantic dark person with the open velvet shirt and the necklace and, like, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, there was a lot of that going around. <laughs> Man, his band's awful Cajun accents. Ugh. It's right, so yeah, they're cringy. bad. Yeah. Yo, voice. Yo, voice. <laughs> Your voice. Who the hell are you, man? The question provoked an irresistible urge. I am the vampire Lestat. It just rolled out of my mouth. With one simple sentence, I had betrayed everything about my kind. Betrayed our code of secrecy. You know, n none of them is curious about how he snuck in without being seen or what he wants. He's just, just like, like, hey, I'm a fucking vampire. And he doesn't actually sing for them. He just makes sort of a, an atonal sound. <laughs> Does he turn them into vampires? No. I know. Okay. The, the movie's just weird how it transitions oh, yeah. to him just having a successful band all of a sudden. 
Yeah, well, I mean, this is the, the movie's got no lead up. It's just like, I'm awake now. By the way, I'm in a new metal band because I snuck into my old house and found a bunch of people who were so impressed by a noise I made. It would be weird to see the practicality of him forming the band, being like them in the studio, being like, all right, do another take, Bob. Right. And like Bob's like doing the drum track again. Like, it would be weird. It's true. I just wish there'd been a little bit more like lead up to him being in the band. Like, I don't need to see the recording sessions, but. There's such a huge disconnect. Between Stuart Townsend and Jonathan Davis's fucking voice. <laughs> like, I don't see that at all. It's a little too late to come over all paternal now, Marius. 200 years and not a word from you. Yeah, they are. There's no way that voice is coming out of that man. No, or, or, or Dryman's voice or Manson's voice or any of the voices they used. It never lines up right uh, it's like they didn't give a shit yeah i mean and then and then so but then he so yeah he shows up he wakes up he's he's been bored with the world he's been asleep for 200 years even though he wasn't asleep for 200 years and he likes corn he's now he shows up in his old house makes a noise joins the band and 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 then he's like he starts telling people he's like by the way i'm a vampire and i'm serious i'm not this isn't a goth act i'm not playing i'm actually a fucking vampire, and that's going to be our bit for the band. I'm super serial, guys. <laughs> right, I'm super serial. You got to believe me. I'm a vampire. <laughs> you can call me vampire. <laughs> that's an awesome new coat, Mike. Looks totally badass. Don't call me Mike. My name is Vampire now. Oh, that's cool. I'm going to change my name to Vladimir. You can't. It's too close to Vampire. <laughs> oh. And that, and this, this is basically what gets the story rolling. Right. It takes us into the uh, title credits, which is a music video. At least they did something creative with it. I'll give them that in terms of having storytelling during the title credits. It shows that they are actually making music and they're kind of moving forward, I guess. I mean, it's not really a time lapse. It's just a music video, but it's uh, based off Nosferatu. I think it's it's evident, but also the director slash producers have said that. Right. Uh, Lestat is now like the biggest rock star around. He's a regular Jonathan Davis, right? <laughs> yeah, they get huge. They get huge, huge. Oh god! Huge. Like how? Can, can you imagine that as a real press conference? Like reporters treating him like he's a real fucking vampire. Yeah, I, I I've always felt a little mixed about that Same. that part because like on the one hand you're right, it seems ridiculous. On the other hand, I guess they were trying to play it like everyone else thinks it's a bit and they're just going along with it but they're not like pushing the issue enough like the way a journalist would yeah right so they're a, li they're a little bit too like accepting of it like oh, okay right. you're a vampire I'm just gonna go along with that I right. feel like a journalist would like really pressure him into answering some tough questions right and they don't but he doesn't even he doesn't even actually show up the rest of the band shows up for the conference he appears on screen yeah he's on Skype well, he's way too fucking cool to show up, dude. <laughs> right? And he only shows up on screen basically for long enough to say, yeah, we're playing this concert. See y'all later. <laughs> he gets 60 seconds, bitches. Right? I hear through the grapevine, that is, that he is giving away vampire secrets in his lyrics. <laughs> there are lots of rumors flying around the internet about the hidden meaning in your lyrics, that you're giving away vampire secrets. Something in all that? Maybe I'm trying to resurrect a few old friends, daring them to come out. But these other vampires, aren't they going to be pissed off that you're giving away their secrets? Mm, I imagine they are, yes. 
Do you have anything else to say to the other vampires listening out there? As a matter of fact, I do. Come out, come out, wherever you are. Yeah, so they established during this press conference, that's the one other bit that, like, he's giving away vampire secrets, and the reporters want to know if the other vampires are going to be angry, and he's like, basically, yeah, I don't give a shit, though, we'll see what happens. <laughs> I'll fuck up the other vampires. <laughs> I'll just make them all go away. Like, which, I mean, this is, so we're leading up to this big concert, and we get there, we'll talk about it more, but this is leading up to one of the stupidest, stupidest parts of the whole fucking story, in any case. <laughs> Indeed, we will cover it, Steve. But for now, Lestat has to feed. And how does he do that now that he's a rock star? He just has his food delivered to him. Yeah, he's got his, like, publicist or assistant or agent, whoever this dude's supposed to be, is is helping him, is basically bringing young women to him. Now, I, I can tell you from secondhand experience and from stories I've heard from people who were there, this shit happens. I'm, I'm being serious. Oh, I'm sure shit. rock stars just pick groupies out, you know, and say, I want her and her and her. Yeah. I'm sure of it. In yeah. a lot of cases, it's even more disconnected than that. They really will just tell whoever to, like, pick out three girls and bring them to my hotel room. I, I have, I'm not going to say who, but I have even been asked to do that for a celebrity before. And I refused. Were you asked to go to the room to be the groupie? I, <laughs> I was asked to escort some, pick out someone and escort them to the room for this person. And, and I told them I wasn't going to participate in that. You know, so that's, it's really, it's creepy to think about, but it's a real thing. But yeah, he's got, he's got this, this guy bringing in women in their early 20s. I mean, whatever, they want to sleep with him, let him sleep with him, I guess. Yeah. But this is a little different, right? Yeah, see, this is where it gets even worse. Because you figure, all right, you know what, if everything's consensual and the young women know, what, know what's going on and they're okay with it, then fine. They can all go to the hotel room and have fun. But uh, Lestat is, is murdering these young women. And the agent seems to be aware of that. He does. Yeah, and doesn't really seem to care very much. Well, every vampire needs a familiar. <laughs> oh, it's Renfield. Right? Yeah, maybe he's the Renfield. I was totally thinking when they started crawling around on the floor, I was like, oh, they're playing Nightcrawlers. Yeah. <laughs> An appearance by Frank Reynolds would have made this movie a lot more entertaining. If he, like, popped up, he's like, you want to play Nightcrawlers? <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that's who they were bringing the girls for. <laughs> One of the things I like doing most is banging whores. Not to get too far ahead, but the character of Marius, I imagined as Taika Waititi's character from <laughs> What We Do in the Shadows, and it made for a way more entertaining experience. Well, and Vincent Perez has been in one of our shared favorite movies, Josh. Oh, City of Angels? <laughs> yes! Oh my God. You don't even have to yes. say it, Josh just knows. <laughs> I was totally going to bring that up. That's uh, Brandon Lee's replacement. Oh, man. Let's talk about <laughs> Jesse a little bit. Jesse, what's her name? Jesse Bradford? Is that her name? No, Jesse Bradford's an actor. <laughs> they just call her Jesse. Yeah, they just call her Jesse. We get her voiceover, and we get to kind of see that she has some connections to vampires, some connections to the uh, supernatural. She used to live with vampires when Jesse she was a Reeves little kid. Jesse is the character's name. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But she was raised by what we later find out is a distant relative. But when she's young, she's cast out of the um, sisterhood of the traveling vampires. <laughs> 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 you can't be here anymore. 
The Sisterhood of the Crucifixion. All of my notes, I've got the Aunt character written down as Aunt Becky. Like, I didn't give a <laughs> shit. I just Aunt Becky this, Aunt Becky that. Aunt Maharet. Maharet. Excuse me. She was one half of... She was supposed to have a twin sister, and the twin sisters in the book were a huge, huge part of the story. They were completely integral to the story, and they they basically just got deleted from the script. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, we they introduce her. She's she's waking up from a dream, and uh, she describes this dream of, of being in a in a sort of lavish old world home, surrounded by people who she felt attached to, and. She felt that she belonged. She's also a big corn fan. Right? Yeah, she's wearing a corn shirt the whole movie. She uh, she felt very attached to these people. And y- you find out while she's describing this dream that she was cast out when she was so little, she's not sure whether or not she was actually ever there. She thinks it may just be a dream. Yeah. Yeah. A voice calling to me in my dreams. The same dream I've had since I was six. Of a family of my own. Not a strange dream, really. One every orphan has. The movie kind of rushes through it so quickly that that might not be clear to everyone that watches it, I think. Yeah. But yes, that is the intention. Right. She is a member of the Talamasca, <laughs> who is not really explained in this movie, so I'm just going to go based off not having read the books and what I see in the movie, which is they investigate the supernatural. They have one rule, Steve. Observe the dark realm, but be not of it. Oh, Dude, uh-oh. I totally wrote that down, too. It's a solid line. <laughs> Jesse's going to have some problems keeping in, in line with those rules. Well, she does like her, um, her like midterm book report on this <laughs> fucking vampire bar, and she's showing him slides, and they're like, hold on, Jesse, you broke the one rule. <laughs> Observe the dark realm, but be not of it. She's like, bitch, I was observing it. I took a picture of the outside of it. What the fuck do you want from me? <laughs> it's the first rule of Vampire Club. You'll talk about Vampire Club. When she wakes up from this dream, she sees a report on MTV News hosted by Serena Altschul, one of the and greats of MTV News. Kurt wasn't available that day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Serena Altschul was, was one of the good alternates. She was very good. But yeah, the, the story is all about Sway, this. also not available. Right, <laughs> Sway, also not available. Uh, hey, what's your problem with Serena Altschul? She was good. I liked her. I like Sway's head wrap. Well, Sway's head wrap was pretty badass. <laughs> but she sees a news report about Lestat's band and this new music video, and they show a clip of the video where she hears a lyric. I don't remember what the lyric is, but the lyric triggers something for her, and she starts digging in, and this is where it leads up to that book report, and she realizes that Lestat's lyric at least seems very much like a reference to a pub that was in London hundreds of years before that was reputed as being a hub for black magic and that was reported to be the site of a lot of disappearing disappearances. And she discovers while researching that there is now a private, what looks like kind of a goth club operating out of that same facility. And she thinks there's a connection. And yeah. That, yeah, that's where she gets told, basically, you're getting too close to this shit. And her superior is a guy named David, who has, on his own, been investigating Marius for a long time, who he explains is Lestat's dad, essentially. <laughs> right, yeah. A bundle of charisma. <laughs> <laughs> the least important character in the movie, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and he's been tracking the Marius character for years, but mostly seems to be pretty useless. His only real contribution to the story is letting, letting uh, uh, Jesse read uh, Lestat's journal, 
which is a, a huge plot hole. He's got one of Lestat's journals. They never explain to you where it, how he got it or where it came from. There's one moment later in the film where Lestat mentions having wondered where that journal went, but it, it still doesn't explain anything. It's, it's not important. You found it at it. Starbucks. You left it there. <laughs> right? <laughs> Lestat's journal. Josh, why don't you tell us about the kind of flashbacks we get, which kind of covers a lot of the first act of the movie about Lestat's history. So going into Lestat's origin, he wakes up. It looks like he's already bitten a little bit. He like grabs his neck, but he's delirious in this unknown place where he's greeted by. I, I'm just, I keep thinking Taika Waititi from what we do in the shadows. And it just kills me. <laughs> but he's greeted by Marius, who, who I guess has chosen Lestat to be his new companion and bites him and... The, the special effects of him like bouncing around with the echo effect behind the actor is so awful. You mean like the trail when the vampires move fast? Yeah, it's so awful. That's how they're they're portraying like super mm -hmm. speed. Yes, yeah. The the uh, visual effects team said that they wanted to do something unique for the vampires' movement. They wanted to make it seem like. The vampires were almost too fast for you to see, which is why they implemented the trail. They had a couple different variations of how they were going to do that. It looks like shit. My problem with that is that if they slow-mo it, which they do almost every time, then it doesn't give that effect, right? Because they do the trail and they slow-mo it. Doesn't quite work for me. Uh, I think there's one bit where they do it and not... They don't slow-mo it, and it's uh, where Lestat is playing the violin in front of the gypsies. Mm -hmm. I think it looks pretty good there. Yeah, I, I feel like they've used that effect in other vampire movies, too, but I can't think of one off the top of my head where they used it. It definitely was not in Interview. I know that. For yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Lestat does get turned into a vampire. He's pretty scared, as you would be as a human that's, you know, being attacked by a demon-like creature. Yeah. And I'll... you're being told you're going to be killed. Oh, the, yeah. The problem was, for me at least, as soon as he's a vampire, he's at 100% confidence. He, like, sits up and he's like, more. more. He's already full Lestat. I don't think he, like, grew to become that person necessarily because yeah. I, I link it back to interview with the vampire in my mind when right. louis becomes a vampire he's like a child right? right he's he's confused he's curious and he's uh they spend a lot of time explaining like you know i was born again and they kind of detail why in that movie and yeah. in this one it's a little abrupt yeah yeah it is. i mean and they the, the the lestat of interview at least the way they played it in the film tom cruise's lestat He's so blasé about it. it. It's almost it's almost like, you know, these people only really exist to be our food who gives a shit about them. And and like but there's no progression to there for Lestat in this film. It's mostly just like he you're right, he was a vampire and then it's like, all right, I'm doing vampire shit now. So Josh talked about the gypsies. Right. And there's a moment where I thought it was kinda kinda go that route, but it was more like he wants to be known. It's more ego based than um, compassion based. Yeah, yeah, they just, they started off making it seem like Lestat is having difficulty detaching himself from that last string of being human, and and that his attachment to this girl is perhaps 
his his fleeting attachment to humanity. But but you're right. Within a few moments of it, it but it, it seems more like he just wants to show off for someone more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, they're playing their uh, music, right? There's the girl playing the violin, and uh, I believe her father playing the guitar. Yeah. Lestat joins in. He picks up a violin, and honestly. I really like the music in that part, and, and I, I actually too. quite like that scene. Yeah. With, the, with, like, the context of story of it being set aside. Like, yeah. him just joining in and, like, him playing lead violin is right. pretty good, and it sounds cool. That's and then yeah. he starts fucking shredding. <laughs> like, <laughs> he plays a mean Cotton Eye Joe. Yeah, he starts <laughs> doing arpeggio sweeps. Like. <laughs> oh. Yeah, yeah, very muddled message there. You don't really get what Lestat wants from it. It's also, I won't go into all the detail, but this is all fucked up from the book. Marius is not the character who turned Lestat in the books. Marius is the character who turned the character who turned Lestat in the books. There's a whole lot here that got real muddled up, and it's part of the reason none of it works. They, they took five or six different story threads and cram, crammed them together and decided it didn't really matter who did what. And, yeah, Yeah, I read that it was a guy called Magnus. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, Magnus, Marius, what's the fucking difference? Right, exactly. <laughs> and the introduction to Akasha in the book is a bit different, and there's actually explanation in the book as to why Akasha's even there in the first place, but... Okay, why yeah. don't you tell us about Akasha's introduction in this movie, in the form of uh, a statue, I suppose. <laughs> right. So, Lestat has, in the film, has been turned by Marius, and they've spent... They don't tell you exactly, but it seems at this point like it's been a few weeks, and... Uh, Lestat is bored. He's wandering around the house that Marius lives in. It's this huge, huge estate. And um, he he's kind of looking for Marius. He's trying to figure out what Marius is. He wants some company. But in doing so, he decides that Marius must, for some reason, be behind a hidden door. He, he finds a, basically a control that opens a door you're clearly not supposed to know is there. But it's pretty obvious because there's a door shape. Right, <laughs> you know, and, and for some reason Lestat's like, oh, Marius must be in there. So he, he walks downstairs with his with his, the fiddle that he's taken from this girl they, they killed, this gypsy girl, and uh, he walks down, down these stairs to a tunnel into a basement level and finds what looks kind of like an ancient temple, like mm -hmm. something from, from 4,000 years ago. There's water, there's candles that light themselves as he walks in. And when he gets to the to the end, he finds this sort of sacred area with two pools and a bridge, two pools of water and a bridge. And um, there are these two statues, a man and a woman sitting in two thrones. He's got no idea who the two of them are. But um, Lestat apparently has another ego trip. I don't know what the fuck is going through his head. And he decides in this moment that what would be the most entertaining is if he played a fiddle song for these two statues. So he starts playing for them. He plays the song of time. He plays the song of time, he yeah. He unlocks. <laughs> right? And as he plays, for some reason, the male statue doesn't respond at all, but the female statue starts moving and sending images into Lestat's head. And she, she moves her arm in such a way that her forearm is exposed. She's got her palm pointed toward the air now. And Lestat decides, for no explicable reason, that he's going to try to bite the statue. I think they're trying to convey some kind of psychic link. Yeah, like he somehow knows, but it's just very weird. Like they don't make that clear, and she still looks like she's made of stone, and Lestat's acting super weird, and it's yes, I don't know. No, the scene didn't really totally work for me. I like the temple. 
The little temple set is like, oh, this is creepy. I like the freaking. It's coffee. good, yeah. It yeah. looks good. Wait, are you saying there's something about this movie that didn't work for you? Oh no, never mind. I mean, otherwise it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> he does suck the blood of the statue of Akasha, who yeah. we find out is the queen of the damned, the titular character, the I guess initial, the very first vampire, but also not exactly a vampire. This character doesn't have all the same rules or limitations that a vampire does. Yeah, and a lot of background there, again, removed from the books. But yeah, she's like the progenitor of the vampire. She's almost kind of like a vampire goddess. She's clearly way more powerful than other vampires and uh, is able to make other beings just combust into flames, which is a storyline in the book. There's there's a whole investigation that Talamasca gets involved trying to figure out who's been setting all these people on fire, turns out to be her. And... uh, yeah, so Marius walks in on Lestat drinking her blood and basically says, what the fuck have you done? And uh, explains a little bit about the two of them. Apparently, the, the male character, whose name I think was Enkel, E-N-K-I-L, was the king, her king. And the two of them lived in ancient Egypt, even before Egyptian society existed. And they were so obsessed with drinking of blood that they, they killed some huge percentage of the human population of the world at the time. In, in, in the quest of the thirst and that he eventually became bored of it and she decided that she didn't want to do it anymore without him being around and so they both became statues for some reason. Yeah, they turn themselves to stone in the same way that Lestat will choose to like sleep for hundreds of years. Right. They have a similar function. Right. And now Lestat has started potentially the process of waking them. Marius knocks him out and in the, ne- the next morning um, the whole place is empty. Yeah. Lestat is abandoned. He, here's the thing I don't fully understand, Steve. Does drinking her blood make him permanently like more powerful? Because it seems like he's like kind of stronger than some other vampires. Yeah, so she does tell him later on. There's a scene where he wakes up and it's daylight. He walks outside and he finds her outside and she tells him that her, power, her blood gives him additional abilities, including the power to exist in daylight. Right. But to me, it doesn't seem doesn't seem like it's permanent it seems like he needs to continue drinking her blood in order to i see yeah i mean that's i thought back point. from when he first drank her blood he was kind of like stronger than most vampires at that point yeah i mean it definitely seems like the effects last for a while mm-hmm. maybe like an antibiotic right where it works for a few days or a few weeks but then eventually you need another one again uh So later in the story, we see Jesse go to the vampire bar that we had mentioned that came up in Lestat's lyrics, the Admiral's Arms. I'm guessing Jesse went to her barber and said, I want the Chun-Li. She did, yeah. It's a very 90s look she's rocking. <laughs> but I, I, I'll tell you guys, that that look was, was my jam in the 90s. I really liked girls <laughs> done up that way. That was, that, that was good for me. Okay, I thought yeah. you were going to say for yourself. No, I mean, it was good for my soul also. I mean, look, Marguerite Moreau in general was good for my soul. She's great to look at. But, yeah, that 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 look was was definitely my jam. She's for, an attractive woman. She yeah. is. She's very pretty. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that look. Even now, I like that look. You know, it's very 2000s. Yeah, I mean, the, the, <laughs> the place she goes, the Admiral's Arms, is like a cool 2000s goth nightclub where... Like super fans of the Matrix hang out, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The turtle, that guy that approaches her, 
is like the it's something about his makeup it's so pale and his eyes are so black it's so cheap looking it's like looks like something out of buffy the vampire slayer yeah <laughs> it's comical they always overdo it with the white pancake makeup it's like he's supposed to look pale not like he's wearing makeup like <laughs> Josh, how does it go for Jesse in the Admiral's arms? Okay, so she uh, is clearly out of her element here. She sticks out like a goddamn sore thumb. But three vampires pick up on this, and she tries to, like, weasel her way out by name-dropping Marius. Coincidentally, Lestat just happens to be sitting in a dark, secluded corner. <laughs> I mean, it's just so convenient, man. I'm glad it worked but out. The others for have it. no idea who he is. <laughs> They're just like, look at my turtleneck, dog. I don't give a shit. Sounds like a made-up vampire name to me, bitch. <laughs> they they think all the ancient ones are dead, which is obviously not true. Right. So she, she just goes to casually escape. You know, she she went to a bar to order a drink. Just just tries to leave immediately, but. They attack her in the alley, and going back to the special effects, the, they're really bad here. It's not great, yeah. <laughs> oh my god, Jesus Christ. When they try to attack her, it's really bad, and there's a lot of mugging at the camera, like vampires going... <laughs> <laughs> a lot of vampire hissing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the hissing, the hissing gets to be a bit much. I don't need 30 seconds of them hissing at each other. <laughs> the vampires are very fashionable for that era in time, you know? They're very much of the time. The vampires are almost always made out as being so cool and so fashionable in that way. It's really, you get you get either the monster, like, Nosferatu vampire who just wants to kill things, or you get the, like, fancy, sexy, fashionable vampire, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> vampire in a three-piece suit right you never get the vampire who's in the middle who doesn't really give a shit you know it's just <laughs> yeah like gym clothes vampire like yeah yoga pants vampire <laughs> so lestat comes to the rescue right and she starts like she starts talking to lestat having this back and forth and she tells him your journal touched me to which i said where did the journal touch you <laughs> no one's allowed to touch her except me. <laughs> and apparently the guy she's married to, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, this is the beginning of their, like, relationship, which she is kind of formed on her own from reading his journal. And, and she, you know, she wants to be closer to him. I don't really buy their relationship. No, I, I, it's hard. And, like, she... It's supposed to draw back to this what she thinks is the dream. And, like... This attachment she's got, like, she she subconsciously knows that she should be a vampire. And that's what draws her to Lestat. It's, it's all a very weird thing. Yeah, at least at this point in the story, Lestat just kind of isn't having it and leaves. But we do get to see him reunited with Marius a little bit later, right, Steve? Yeah, yeah. Eventually, Marius uh, sort of comes to the rescue. Because we're leading up to the confrontation at the concert in the desert. Right, yeah. and this is, I think, the same night, but earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he he finally meets meets up with her. She she breaks the rules. The Telemosca people tell her to leave it alone, not go anywhere. She breaks the rules and goes to Los Angeles as a, a st jumping point to get to the concert, which is being held in Death Valley. And uh, while she's in L.A., 
this is one of the most realistic scenes in the whole movie, I thought. If you were alive in the late 90s and early 2000s in Los Angeles and you went to these kinds of concerts, there's a scene where she gets out of a taxi and there's a bunch of kind of gothy people milling around in their clothes. One of them's smoking a cigarette. They're all just waiting apparently to, to take off to wherever the, the concert location is. That, that moment felt very real to me. Jonathan Davis is trying to sell, sell you his, tickets. His, his demo tape <laughs> right. or whatever. This is one cameo in the movie. But like, there's so many of those shows, man, late 90s, early 2000s, I was hanging out waiting for a, a tram or hanging out outside the Pantages or the Echoplex or wherever the fuck the concert was going to be. The, the fucking Universal Amphitheater back when it still existed. And it really was like that. It's a lot of just fanny people hanging around, having smokes, chit-chatting. And that, that was a that was a fun moment. It's kind of reminded me of being that age. But Oh, uh, yeah, dude. I miss the, the pre-disturbed concert at the right. House of Blues on Sunset, you know? Yeah. All the people hanging out front, like, wearing their fucking spikes and shit. Yeah, and I'm not proposing that the music was amazing, but the first really serious concert I went to as a teenager was Rob Zombie at the Universal Amphitheater, and that was that environment was just a lot of fun. For sure. You know? But, uh... uh so, anyway, she meets up with them, she gets solicited by Jonathan Davis, and she, she manages to make herself one of the girls who's getting picked out by Lestat's assistant or whoever yeah. he is. And she gets taken back to Lestat's house with a second girl. It's another great moment with this girl. A really, really pointless joke that would only ever be funny to a person who's from Los Angeles. So Jesse gets picked in the second, along with the second girl and they get taken back to Lestat's house. Jesse is doing this because she wants to get to Lestat. The second girl, though... And I don't know who she is. She's not a big actress. I don't know if she ever worked again. She, this, this this young woman played this this just two minutes worth of part so perfectly where she's she's supposed to be this huge fan of Lestat and she's so happy to be there and she really wants to spend time with them and she's immediately disappointed that Lestat's obviously more interested in Jesse and she she gets this kind of mopey face and she tells Lestat I came all the way from Tarzana <laughs> <laughs> right and if you live in Los Angeles and you know where Tarzana is that moment's really funny yeah but if you if you're from anywhere else you'd never fucking get the joke. You'd never even know what the joke was. So I don't understand why they'd put it in there. But hey, Steve, people are, are listening that don't live in LA. Please explain. So uh, for those who don't know, Los Angeles is huge. Los Angeles County is the physically largest county in the United States. And it encompasses the, the LA basin, which is where the core of the city is, but also other surrounding areas one of which is a huge valley, the San Fernando Valley, all well, almost all of which is part of the city of Los Angeles. And one of the suburbs of L.A. in the San Fernando Valley is called Tarzana. Um, it's a nice place to live for the most part. It's a mostly middle and upper middle class suburb, but it is kind of an out of the way suburb. And, um, and, you know, the whole point was supposed to be I made this big trip all the way out here from Tarzana, from the suburbs to get to you. And... Um, uh, and you know, you just, you just wouldn't, you wouldn't get it. And like, even, even knowing now, even for someone who's listening to this explanation, if you've never, it's not a big trip. Yeah. You know, and, and, and especially you know, there's also that little bit of funniness that like dealing with LA freeways, like last night we saw Roger Rabbit last night. I'm going to talk about that for a second. Like there's a bunch of jokes in Roger Rabbit about LA's freeways. Yeah. And I just can't imagine anyone who's not from here would ever really get it. <laughs> like traffic jams will be a thing of the past <laughs> yeah you know what it's fair to compare roger rabbit to this oh uh, yeah absolutely josh but um but yeah so anyway she, that, that that actress i hope i don't know who she is if you ever come across this pod miss i really hope you got other parts because you played that bit perfectly 
But uh, she ends up getting escorted out, which is probably to her benefit, because if she'd stuck around, Lestat would have just drank her to death. Yes, definitely to her <laughs> benefit, I'd say. <laughs> right. And uh, Lestat hooks up with Jesse, and they, they have uh, a moment together. And uh, yeah, they're, they're kind of establishing that Jesse just sort of feels like she belongs with him. And this is the lead up to him going to the, the concert that same evening. Yeah, they he takes Jesse for like a romantic vampire oh, yeah. flight through the night skies of L.A. This is like a riff I on Christopher Reeve's Superman. Superman thing. Oh my yes. god, yes, yes, yes. No. <laughs> Step it. aside, Superman, we now have the most iconic romantic flight scene of all time. You know, I have a feeling you're going to disagree with me, which is fine, but if I'm being honest, I'd rather be Lestat than Superman. I'd rather be the vampire. I just like that better. <laughs> Cinematically, though, man, this one just kicks Superman in the teeth, doesn't oh, yeah. it, Steve? Right, absolutely. Well... I, I've, I've, this is a whole other conversation. I've never actually been a big fan of the Reeves Superman movies. I mean that with all due respect to him and his memory, but I've never, never been big on those. Uh. So they land somewhere. I don't remember where. It doesn't matter. And then Jesse just slices her tit open. <laughs> says, suck on these titties, Lestat. <laughs> <laughs> One of many, many, many moments that just, why didn't it happen to me? I don't understand why these things don't happen to me. But Lestat totally has like erectile dysfunction, so it's not, it's not really a good time. <laughs> oh my god! We we kind of skipped over Marius. I just want to quickly say Marius does warn Lestat that danger is coming the night of the concert, and they hang out on like a one hundred foot poster oh, yeah. of Lestat in uh, downtown LA. I assume. <laughs> And they're sitting right at his crotch, which is just funny. <laughs> yeah, they have their, their vampire moment together. And uh, Lestat's basically like, I don't care. You guys do whatever. He's also like, you know, fuck that Peter Jackson guy. What an overrated hack. <laughs> you know? He has no idea what the fuck. The guy doing. that directed the best King Kong has no idea what he's doing. <laughs> the um, best King Kong, you say. That is the best King Kong. you tell me Skull Island's better than that? No. You're all right. <laughs> you know, the, the one from the 70s with Jeff Bridges is actually a really good movie. I just prefer... You don't like 30s King Kong, huh? I, well, I love that. I love that film. It's an icon. It's a lot... I've, I've owned many copies. It's a lot of fun. But, like, as a, as a film experience, like, as a modern film experience, Peter Jackson's version is incredible. It's, what a huge project. I, I get why some people don't like it, and it's long, but I, I really enjoyed that, that story. See, Steve will defend that movie to no end. But we'll kind of be like, well, Lord of the Rings is, I don't know, it's kind of has some prize, all right, but you no, know. No, no, wait, what? I've never said that about Lord of the Rings. I like Lord of the Rings. I like Lord, I like, really like Lord of the Rings. Okay, now you're backtracking. Go back and listen to episode 12, everyone. I actually don't know what episode that was. <laughs> no, I, I, my only real problem with Lord of the Rings is they kind of went halfway with it. Like, they excised a there tremendous tremendous amount of books and still ended up with three movies that were three hours long a piece but that doesn't that would be my only real complaint is that i wish if they were going to be that long anyway that more of the books had made it into the film but i really like them that's another huge fucking technical achievement okay cool yeah you've redeemed yourself redeemer style no okay, come on anybody that says they don't like those movies is just being a jerk or they're just they don't like that material in the first place oh man right. Can, can we just talk about the stat for a second when marius shows up at his house or estate or whatever the fuck but instead finds an edge lord, because Lestat is fucking sitting in his coffin, kicking tunes. He's so fucking edgy. <laughs> Whatever he's listening to in the coffin is terrible. In that interview where he's on the jumbo chart and he's like, "I'm sorry, I was just out trying to catch breakfast." <laughs> like, <laughs> like we get a dude, you're a fucking vampire. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> but like, 
this just makes what happens at the concert even worse. It's the worst part of the movie. We're going to get there in a second, but real quick, Josh, before we get to the concert, we do have to intro the Queen of the Damned herself, Akasha. She's also a big fan of corn. <laughs> yeah, but Aaliyah loved corn. The late and great Aaliyah. Well, let me tell you, she gets 26 minutes of screen time, doesn't show up to the 51 minute mark, top fucking build. I mean, this movie combines like 700 pages worth of book. It's only an hour and 40 minutes long, and she's in the film for less than half an hour. What the fuck? <laughs> hey, hey, top, top bill. This movie has a lot to do. Right? Yeah. I, God, I, that, see, I'm gonna, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. This is one of those conflicting movies where, on the one hand, it wasn't good enough for me to want it to be longer, but on the other side, should have been longer because they, they did not give themselves enough time to tell the story. Anyway. Josh, I'd like you to take us through Akasha arriving at Club Blade, if you please. <laughs> Dude, totally. I have Blade written down, too. What the fuck? Whoa, whoa. Let's not conflate this with Blade. It's totally <laughs> Club Blade, right? So she shows up. Billy dances through the room <laughs> and then sees the stats like cord cover band on MTV <laughs> and then and the turtleneck's like uh we're totally gonna like rip him the fuck apart or whatever and she's like oh yeah and then Belly dances her way onto the dance floor is this the most awkward movie to ever be or awkward moment ever to be in a vampire movie because I think it is yeah, this is pretty bad. She she was a very talented singer, and it's very sad that she died so young. She didn't even live long enough to see the movie come out, but she was not, with all due respect, she was not a good actress. And oh, and the, no. the, the, the scene itself is so fucking awkward. They have this, this sexy belly dance in and out of the scene, and all the other vampires are suddenly so <laughs> taken by her because she's wearing the head. It's like it's not, there's nothing impressive about this moment. The whole thing, from the moment it starts, it's just, I felt awkward. Okay, it's like, I just want this to end. <laughs> Here it comes, boys. Here's my hot take. I fucking love this scene. Oh, I've always loved this scene. I've never been able to shake it. It's so awkward. So here's... <laughs> One of the reasons that is probably to my fault that I can't get past is that I find her extremely attractive. She's very pretty. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Big time hots for Aaliyah in this movie yeah. for me. So that's a factor. I, I admit, and that skews my perspective slightly. But when she comes into the room, you say there's nothing redeeming, right? I'll see if I can find some things. She has a like an otherworldliness, even in comparison to vampires, right? She's not the same as them. There's a distinct feeling of difference between her, a, a, a more regal feeling, I'd say. And a lot of that has to do with her costume design, which is really fucking cool. Is it not, Steve? I, I, I like the costume in general, yeah, and it was well made. And I agree with you in intent. It just, for me, it didn't come off. And I understand you you feel differently. I'm just saying for me, I, I think I felt like that was what they were going for, but I didn't quite get it. I got it. And I think the makeup as well is also really good. She She's almost gold in a way, you know? Yeah, and the makeup was good. She is definitely different from everyone. She's different from humans. She's different from vampires, different from anyone we've seen in this movie. That much I will agree with. They at least did it well enough for me that to, to make her stand out as being different from the others. Yeah. And she, I think she has a great voice effect. There's like an echo effect, which right. was actually done partially out of necessity. Right. Because she wasn't alive to do the necessary ADR right. that they needed in the movie. Yeah. So they actually got her brother, 
and then they kind of like warped his voice. Right. So it's kind of a double voice combined when you see her speak in most of the scenes, including this one. It's and an I think interesting it, way to do that. I, I think like it sounds things. really cool. It like, does. She's almost hypnotizing to them. It's a pretty artistic approach to a very legitimate problem. Yes. Liam, is that what you're going to do? What she does when she kills the first vampire in the room, I think is incredible. I love it. She is confronted by someone. She kind of almost psychically seduces him and he approaches her. She rips out his heart. She takes a bite of it and then she crumbles it into dust in one hand. And I love that effect of holding the heart and she squeezes it and it doesn't just like explode blood it turns into dust like that's the power she wields the dust effect was cool i like that part the the, the portion of her actually doing it though taking the heart out and, and eating it just underlined the awkwardness for me <laughs> okay i just it just felt so weird i don't know when she starts like psychically exploding vampires it looks a lot like blade it does look a lot it like does. like like the blade but and blade is at least in my opinion the far superior of these two movies but yeah <laughs> how dare you was Jonathan Davis involved in Blade, yes or no? Much to, to Blade's benefit, no. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, we also learned that with a wave of her hand, she can immolate human and vampire alike. She feeds on human and vampire alike. And that was something like, kind of to what you were talking about, Corey, like she was so powerful in the novel and so much of the story was driven by her, like them trying to figure out who the fuck was doing that. Like, Combining these movies and compress, compressing the two stories the way they did really, really took away the ability to, to, to make more of that with that character. She should have been such an impact, especially in a movie called Queen of the Damned. She's got 26 minutes of screen time. Top build. But not only are the vampires no. coming for Lestat, she is coming for Lestat. In a different way, right? right? She is <laughs> the vampires want Lestat deader than Stuart Townsend's movie career. <laughs> yeah, more dead, please. <laughs> so but let's talk about the big concert, Lestat's one and only concert that he is going to perform, which is in Death Valley, California. Which I'm sure they chose just because of the name. Death right? Valley, of course. Who can do a concert there? It's the hottest, hottest place on the fucking planet. Like, <laughs> right? And you're gonna get thousands of people to all show up there when there's nowhere nearby to stay. <laughs> yeah. And like, yeah. I, this is this is by far the most intellectually offensive part of the entire film. This fucking concert. Really, really bad. Are you are you telling me people wouldn't set up pyros or what? Whatever. Right. Or just, dry, hot fucking desert. I mean, and then the whole point really is this is the, to give the other vampires an opportunity to attack him. The story here is that these vampires are so angry about Lestat shining a light on their existence that they choose to deal with it by showing up at a concert with 30,000 people to kill him and then to do the whole thing on stage while the entire audience is watching. I, hey, I see no flaws in this plan. <laughs> right? And the, they double down on it and make it so that no one in the audience questions whether or not this was part of the show. In fact, at the end of the film, the David character, the boss in the telemask, is reading a newspaper where they imply it was just a mass bad <laughs> drug trip. 
<laughs> it's Woodstock. Right, oh my right. god. And the fucking crowd went wild. Like, there's no... Come on. You, they're so desperate to stop him from making their existence public that they decide not to kill him two hours before the concert when they know exactly where he's going to be, but to kill him during the concert while everyone's watching on TV. This makes total sense. Well, I mean, he did put up both hands and told them to come at him. So right. But what I, do you do? What, what the fuck are you going to do, bro? Maybe wait till everyone else is gone. Fuck <laughs> that fight. him on stage. Right. You're right. That really does undermine the point. Right. You, it's just like, I, we're so mad. You're not keeping the secret that we're going to blow the secret. <laughs> everyone attack. <laughs> right. Before they attack, I want to talk about the concert a little bit. I guess Disturbed opens for oh, the yeah. Vampire Lestat because you hear Down with the Sickness playing. You get Down with the Sickness and, and uh, the typical uh, ape call he does before every single song. <laughs> yeah. Or the modified Chewbacca noise, if that's the way you prefer to describe it. <laughs> it is a little funny. I did think that was pretty cool when I was younger, though. Right? <laughs> when I was in eighth grade. It's like a mutant bird call. <laughs> Marius just shows up at this show to just fuck with the nerd guy. Like, what? They never really established their relationship, like, at all. No, it's true. Ugh. It's not shaping up well, guys. <laughs> Lestat and his band come on stage and they start playing Slept So Long which is a song I work out to every week I play that song at least once I, I don't know I, aside from the fact that it definitely does not sound like Stuart Townsend singing no. you know it's very clearly a different person it's very clearly the singer of Korn I do kind of like that moment just because I like the song. Is that bad? I no, mean, no. based on my opinion of corn, yes, but you're allowed <laughs> to feel differently. <laughs> Josh, what do you think of the fight scene when Lestat is attacked by the bad vampires? Oh, this is some lame ass like Buffy the Vampire like Buffy the Vampire Slayer like the TV show yeah the TV show because Buffy the Vampire Slayer the movie which is not at all like the show is actually really good I mean that's I agree yeah yeah I agree and it's like you were saying like the trails with the vampires is the bad special effects and then Marius shows up to save the day and then Lestat does like some kind of like Spin Taj move and it looks like shit. They did not find a very good uh, vampire fight choreographer no, in this film. No. They didn't. <laughs> choreographer? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> the fight is a lot of like a vampire swoops in, Lestat like lays down on the ground and then pops back up. I think that happens two or three times. Yeah. The move he does where he stands on his hands and he like kicks a guy while standing on his hands doesn't work like no. that's supposed to be like a big like fight move that's so fucking stupid <laughs> this is like watching what a bunch of 12 year olds who wanted to film a vampire film or fight scene would film and then he like cuts his fucking head off bro yeah, exactly. and then like kicks the body and the head just falls right and he brings the VHS to school to show his other friends <laughs> like look at this cool thing we filmed over the weekend <laughs> so much Resident Evil influence permeated throughout the 2000s <laughs> 
I don't even know if that's the first one actually, but I think we saw it in 13 Ghosts when we did that podcast years ago. Right. But oh, like God, where yeah. someone gets sliced or chopped in some way and then it hangs on them for a moment and then the appendage falls off. In this case, it's oh, the head. Yeah. Yeah, that old trope. There's always that second where they get the surprised look on their face. Like, yeah. they know what's happening, and yeah. then their head falls off. <laughs> it's just so fucking edgy, man. It's right. just like the tiniest cut, and then it just like... Right? <laughs> that was all throughout the 2000s. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's another one where, like, for some reason, I can't think of any specific examples, but I just know it was used in 30 other movies. Like... Yeah. But as Lestat starts to get overwhelmed... And, you know, Marius has his back, but there's just too many. Akasha comes up from under the stage. She was under the stage the whole time, Steve. Oh, my God. <laughs> what a twist. What was she doing down there? Eating snacks? Eating rats. Who knows? Checking the PA levels? She's waiting for the right moment. She's, like, listening in. Like, no, not yet. She wanted to make sure the sound was good. You know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, she wanted to hear a couple songs first. <laughs> yeah, I mean, considering that, that this music is what lured her out of being a statue in the first place. <laughs> yeah. So she rescues Lestat, and she kind of, like, takes him away, you know? They go to, I don't know, somewhere, and she kind of says, like, I want to make you my companion. You'll be my king. I'll be the queen. We will rule the world, and we're going to change everything. This is but a taste of what we shall share, my love. My king. Behold our kingdom. Kingdom of corpses? Why? Why not? This is why you have risen. They believed in nothing. Now they are You and I, we will change all that. We will give the world something to believe in again. Now come, my love. We have a score to settle. Do they have sex right here? Or, uh, like, what's, what's implied here? They're just, like, hanging out in a bathtub? Fighting on each other and shit. Yeah, it's like whatever vampires spend eternity doing with each other. I think they're definitely banging. They're in a sexy rose petal bathtub while Deftones is playing on a little boombox <laughs> nearby. I, I, well, I, that scene, that was my favorite music scene in the whole movie because it was a nice break to get Deftones instead of corn. But... <laughs> But well, I actually like I actually like the Deftones, and that song is probably their most uh, famous song. But um, it's a good one. Yeah, how, "Changing the House of Flies" is a good song if you're into hard metal. I, I yeah, I do like that song. Right. Still. But yeah, like so, Akasha t- totally kills everybody. Like a one mile radius. Or yeah, he comes too after their night together and just finds that like there's dead bodies everywhere. Oh, he's also a daywalker. Yeah, yeah, so he goes, he, like, he should have been more reticent, but he just wakes up and it's sunlight and decides he's going to try walking outside. No, oh, guess what? It's fine. And he <laughs> sees all the bodies, and Akasha tells him, yeah, drinking my blood lets you be out in the sunlight. This is another thing they neutered 
Akash has got no real motivation in this film. In in the books, there was actually she was after stuff. She she spends some of her time trying to like empower the world's women. She convinces women in certain societies to like take over from the men, and she decides that she wants to be basically the the queen slash deity of a worldwide vampire society where most of the humans would end up dead. And it may be thin. I'm not saying it's the greatest story in the world, but at least she had some motivation. At this point, there's only like 30 minutes left in this movie, and it feels like the start of Act 2. Yes, thank you. That's exactly what I was getting at, and it goes back to what I was saying a moment ago where they didn't give this film enough time to tell its own story. Like, the, it, this takes place, I actually recorded it, this takes place at like an hour and 26 minutes or something like that, into, into an hour and 40 minute long film. We're only just now having this conversation, and a conscious... Yeah, there's like conflict now. And there's conflicts, right? And, and Akash's motivation is so paper-thin, it may as well not exist at all. This, it's not, this, it's, just don't worry about it. Yeah, exactly. This really, but it should have been three movies. Two parts for Lestat and a third one where they did Queen of, Leda- Queen of the Damned. Instead, it's an hour and 40 minutes where everything of any plot significance got blood out of it. So now I don't even give a shit. This character's <laughs> just... And, you know, and even Lestat says, you know, do you really want to rule over a planet of corpses? And Akash's response is, yeah, I don't, I don't really care. So it doesn't make any sense because, like, what do you do then when everything else is dead? Um, Space, bitch. (laughs) Right, space vampires. Um, It's going to be like Marvel Zombies. Do you remember how that comic ended? Oh, God, I don't remember the ending. So, like, all the Marvel heroes have basically eaten all the people on the planet. Right. And then Galactus comes. And and just eats all of them. No, they find a way to eat him. Oh, God, yeah, that's right. So they turn it on its head, and then they're like, what do we do now? And then it ends with them, like, invading other planets and just, like, eliminating whole societies. Right. I was thinking of, like, a couple of deleted scenes in the first Blade movie, and I think maybe three, I'm not sure, but they've got, like, human like corpse farms where they've just got humans stored in bags or some shit I don't I don't know I, it's been forever since I seen it. the other thing is it felt to me like they missed a really huge filmmaking opportunity here if this had been let's say a two and a half hour movie two two and a half two and three quarters which is probably closer to what it should have been if the entire film up until this point had taken place only at night only in the dark and this scene where Lestat wakes up and finds that he can go out in the daylight would have was if this would have been the first scene in the movie, two hours in where there's daylight. After being subjected to the two hours of darkness, it feels it would it would have felt like a huge break. It would have felt like something of substance. It would have been like wow, something here has really changed. And and he, and you know they're up in the daylight and they're discussing what the world will be like when the two of them rule everything. And that just. It just got blood out of it. Like, nothing's there. Speaking of lack of motivation, she tells us that now we have a score to settle. I'm like, with who? Yeah, with who? With With what? what? You're you're finished with them. Like, (laughs) Lestat didn't care about them to begin with. And then it's also very weirdly conflicting because Lestat is supposed to be finding a connection to humanity through the Jesse character, but Akash just shows up and is like, yeah, we're just going to murder everyone. And for a moment, Lestat's like, yeah, yeah, okay, that might be cool. (laughs) Like... (laughs) On one hand, that could be cool. Right? (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, just like there's so many opportunities here for there to be real story and real character, and they just skipped all of it. You can really tell if you know how this film got developed that it came about as the result of just wanting to get a product made. They didn't really give a shit about the story. Sad to say, but it does kind of feel that way at times. Right. Although, you know, I hate to just 
put that on people because I assume the people making this did care. You know, they're making something. Yeah. Maybe the people overseeing it didn't care, uh, but that might be the case in a lot of movies. I think some that of which could case. be great. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that is the case in a lot of movies. You know, even if the people in, who were making it care, that it's the people above them who just don't really give a shit. <sighs> so, fellas, stakes are high. Everyone's showing up for this finale, but nothing is established, and I don't give a shit. That, see, that, there you go. It's the I don't give a shit part. I couldn't agree with you more on the rest of it also, but, like, that's the stakes are high, but I, I don't actually care. I do like, not care. What's going on? Who's who? Yeah. Why is anything? At this point, the only purpose in even watching the ending is just to see how it ends. There's no emotional investment <laughs> at all. Like, <laughs> so we have the confrontation at Vampire HQ, right? <laughs> Which is Maharet's house. Yeah. And it's upon upon arriving back at Maharet's house that Jesse realizes that she has been there before, and it wasn't just an invention of her dreams. Exactly. Yeah. I guess to fill in the story, which doesn't matter that much in the context of the movie, but Maharet had human relatives and children when she was turned into a vampire. And she's kind of been following her bloodline through generations. Right. And eventually it came to Jesse, who's distantly, distantly related to her. And her parents died. So Maharet had been taking care of her as a kid until eventually she was like, all right, that's enough. You can't hang out with us. She doesn't want Jesse to grow up in the vampire environment, but it's also like, then where did you send her? Who did she grow up with? How is it possible that she thought this was a dream and the people that adopted her never told her anything about where she came from? It's just the whole thing's weird. Why didn't, why didn't Maharet keep any contact with her for all these other years if they loved each other so much? Vampires don't have cell phones. I guess, <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I guess not, you know? Or, or telekinesis or the ability to fly or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, another another bastardization of the book. The Maharet character again was supposed to have a twin sister. It was supposed to be a lot more there. Her and the sister was supposed to be these masters of magic. They were supposed to be like the only threat to Akasha. And that you get to the point with her where so much of her background character is not there for the film. Honestly, if you were going on the film alone, I'm not sure I would understand why she was even there. She doesn't even react when Jesse is seemingly killed. Right. They couldn't yeah. even be bothered with, like, a reaction shot of her going, no, or right. anything like that. It's just sort of a superfluous character that seems to be there just to fill out the character roster. I don't know. Josh, why don't you fill <laughs> us in on some of the other details here? Akasha is with Lestat. She basically tells all the ancient vampires and Jesse, join me or die. One of the ancient vampires totally looks like fucking Peter Mayhew, right? Yes, <laughs> and the the one dude with the blonde hair, the long blonde hair. If they'd made this movie twenty years earlier, that would have been Alex Winter. I'm convinced of it. <laughs> well, the long haired blonde guy is supposed to be Antonio Banderas's character yeah. from Interview with a Vampire, and it looks nothing like him. Nothing like him. Clearly, is not. And that character did not have that part in this movie. Well, in, in that character part. in the books, from what I read, yeah. doesn't look like Antonio Banderas. So maybe no. this is the real version, right? Yeah. Well, the camera kept fucking lingering on him like I'm supposed to give a shit. So I looked it up on IMDb and I was like, oh, that's why they want me to care. But nothing is right. established. Well, yeah, exactly. Nothing is. And they don't. He's, even if they had told you that's who it's supposed to be, they make his character out in this movie to just be this vampire that's sort of hanging around. Yeah, it's just the blonde one in the background. Yeah. Where in the books, he was this hugely important character. He did a lot. Like. Wait, no, hold on. 
Because it's at this point that Akasha totally demands that Lestat kill Jesse. He finally sucks her titties. <laughs> yeah, and then he started playing with the nipples, and it got, it got a little weird. <laughs> he was going a little far in front of his queen, you know? <laughs> She's like, look what I made my bitch do. <laughs> then I get... Then I guess he starts sucking on Akash's titties. I'm just kidding. Her wrists. He starts sucking on her wrists. So then she says, look how he obeys. Like a dog. Like, what a fucking bitch. But I guess she, like, comes just a little bit, but immediately tells Lestat to stop what he's doing, you know? She's just like, and got it. But then he like starts to suck even harder. <laughs> the the group of them had established at Maharet's house a few minutes before that the only way Akasha could ever be made vulnerable enough to kill is while she's allowing someone to draw blood from her. So L- Lestat is going to set things up here. And it's a very Julius Caesar type of moment where they spring into action and just start sucking on her. To Lestat. <laughs> what do you think of this, Steve, as the uh, the the way to defeat her? Like, this is like, I guess, the, the last action sequence? Yeah, this is like the climactic action sequence, and it's pretty anticlimactic, really. There's not a whole lot of, I mean, there's a little bit of a fight, but nothing super impressive. Peter Mayhew gets killed. Yeah, Peter Mayhew yeah. gets killed. Lestat's well, just like, some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate uphill. And then Marius goes in for the kill, and then Maharet's like, no, I'm going to do this shit. And then takes all the XP for the party. Yeah, yeah, she takes all the XP for the party. She fucking ninjas the loot. (laughs) And they finally get her, and she kind of dissolves to dust. The effect effect of Akasha dying and dusting like that, I thought was the best effect in the whole movie. I don't hate it. Yeah, it's not perfect but i thought it was pretty cool i wrote it down as almost a cool death yeah like it starts off cool but by the end of it it gets a little yeah. like a uh, brendan fraser mummy-esque you know how they arrive at the death is not cool right just like leaping on her and like sucking blood from her arms and shoulders like that's not cinematically uh, engaging I, not enough yeah, for me especially you know that part i know you know josh may know too that part in invincible where um, Iron Man goes to town on the the Avengers knockoff. I can't with Guardians of Globe, whatever they call themselves. Yeah. Like that's that's like the level that I want. It's supposed to be a fucking vampire queen, and the rest of the high powered vampires are coming after. Like I want that. I think it'll be a long time before we see a scene like that done that good again. You're probably right. Because that is like it that's, was brutal. It was brilliant. It was fucking brilliant. The Flash dude getting him in the chest was crushing. The guy is so good. It's so good. Holy shit, that was done right. All right, anyway. (laughs) But when Akasha turns all black, her skin starts to change. The inside of her mouth even changes, her eyes. Like, I I quite like that. It's scary looking. It is. You see her kind of for the demon that she really is momentarily. Yeah, I mean, and that's really the thing. She's she's beyond even just a normal vampire. She's almost, like, possessed of of the soul of some demon. Yeah. I really wish they would have went into that. You know, that would have been cool. Yeah, that would have, you know, if they hadn't excised almost everything interesting from two separate books. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I mean, if they'd only started on this two or three years earlier and done the whole thing right. 
Like, fuck, man. Yeah. Steve, how does it wrap up after that? So they save Jesse by turning into her into a vampire. Right. Which is really what she sort of subconsciously, at least, has wanted the entire time. She consciously wanted. She said the words, I want this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think she realized at first that's what she wanted, but she she gets to it, yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's it's a ridiculous choice for her to make. She's got no idea what she's dooming herself to. Is it established at all in the books if you have to, like, invite a vampire in? Because they just showed the fuck up at that one guy's place. Yeah, I... Full disclosure, I read the Anne Rice vampire books when I was in high school, which was 20 years ago, so I don't remember every detail. That being said, I do not remember that being included, and one of the things about Rice's books was always that she had modified the vampire lore a little bit for her own story. See, I don't I don't think that element exists in, in the Anne Rice universe. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't think. Like the crosses isn't a thing in yeah. Anne Rice because they're all pre-Christian. Right. Right. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them a are. Lot of them. So the holy water and crosses doesn't work on them, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's one, I mean, vampires are kind of a ridiculous concept in general, really, but she had, she had a nice way of toning it down enough that a lot of the most silly parts of the vampire lore just weren't, weren't there for her, which I liked. But uh, yeah, so anyway, so that, I mean, and it really just sort of ends. The queen is dead. Jesse gets turned into a vampire and then basically runs off with Lestat. So the two of them can spend eternity with each other. Well, they visit David, the most important character in the movie. Oh, yeah. They do visit David to let him know what's happened for some weird fucking reason. <laughs> there is no way, no reason you need to stop and tell this guy what's going on. And uh, like no one cares <laughs> about David. We don't care about him. I don't right. know why they care about him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's much better for Jesse for him to think that she just disappeared. But She yeah. did break the number one rule, though. Right. Observe the dark realm, but be not of it. Bitch, right. this is the one rule. Yeah, you became literally a part of it. And, I mean, she doesn't seem to have considered the fact that Lestat is not a hero. Lestat is a selfish, self-absorbed asshole who survives by murdering innocent people and drinking their blood. Why is that the life you've... That's what you want? You want to spend eternity killing people? He's fucking edgy, yo. Yeah. Like, it just... So I mean, have you seen those abs? Right? <laughs> I mean, and like, you know, I can sort of get it from a perspective. Like, the vampirism is sexy and you get the immortality that goes along with it. But like, one of the underlying messages of the all the Anne Rice stories is supposed to be that it's kind of its own sort of hell to be a vampire. In fact, at the end of Interview, even in the movie... The Louis character is offended when the reporter asks to be turned because the whole point of Louis' story was supposed to be this existence isn't fun. It's not something you should want. And then they go back on it at the end of this where the ultimate goal is for the pretty girl to be turned into a vampire and spend the rest of eternity murdering people. Just living like a fucking rock star, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> You know, and fucking, yeah. So anyway, that's, and then, so they go visit David and then David gets, you don't really see it happening, but David gets a visit from, um, Marius, who he's who David has been obsessed with his whole life. So yeah, I guess the idea is he's gonna get turned. Is that? The yeah, I think that's kind of what it makes it seem like is that Marius is gonna turn him too. I can't wait to see the David spinoff movie, the most interesting <laughs> character in the movie. Easily, you know, yeah. fortunately, it's been twenty years since this came out, and they haven't made any more sequels. So I think we can rest in peace so that it's not gonna happen. <laughs> well, that was the big payoff for that very vital, very important subplot, right? Oh boy! And I think I, these books could really like make a good 
HBO series or something based on what you're telling me. I think so, too. A hundred percent. And even Anne Rice said when they were doing this that Lestat should never, they, no one should have ever attempted to turn Lestat into a movie. She didn't want it to be turned into a movie that if it was going to be adapted at all, that it needed to be a miniseries. Especially because the way the book is formatted, different chapters are like, it's really broken into sections. With each section, you're with Lestat in one part, you're with Jesse in one part. So a miniseries makes perfect sense because each episode can tackle their portion of the story. HBO, are you listening? Right, exactly. Yeah, in fact, HBO, if you're listening, start at the beginning. Start with Vampire. Let's do the whole thing, you know? They could do it really well. But uh, but yeah, I agree. Should have been a miniseries. Everything about the way they approached this was just wrong. <laughs> That is the queen of the damned. Steve, do you have any final thoughts before we go into ratings? Any final thoughts on uh, queen of the damned? I don't know. What else is there to say? Uh, the actress, Lena Olin, who played Maharet, uh, was in a bunch of, um, she's Swedish. She was in a bunch of Ing- Ingmar Bergman stuff. She's actually a pretty serious actress, which is cool. But yeah, I don't know. Not much else. That's pretty much it. Well, I have one quick thing. And there's a story about a real life story, a guy named Alan Menzies. He was in his 20s. Oh. He was in Scotland. He killed his best friend right. and drank his blood. He stabbed the dude 42 fucking times. And he says that he was ordered to do that by Akasha from this movie. Yeah. So this movie. Yeah, I think I did hear that. Indirectly influenced a real life murder. Not to say that the people that made this movie have any involvement. Of course, it's unfair to say that it's their fault. But that did occur in real life. I always wonder in cases like that whether the person was really so mentally ill that they actually believe that's the case or if they just believed that claiming so afterward would make them seem crazy enough to get off. Like, I guess we don't know, do we? Yeah. But I got to say this. People named Alan, watch out for him. <laughs> right? They don't like cartoon babies either. All right, Steve, on any rating scale you want, what are you going to give Queen of the Damned? God damn. I'm going to give this movie... I'm going to be generous, I think, and give this movie five immortal blood-sucking bloodsuckers out of, out of ten. Five is the best I can do. Five is the best I can do. There are movies that are worse than this, which is part of the reason it's getting a five. And I, I'm always willing to give some points to a production team just for getting a movie made, because I know how hard it is to get anything made. And some of the costuming and the makeup in this movie were cool. The sets were pretty cool. But everything else about it just really fell short. They, they took hundreds and hundreds of pages of story, bled everything worthwhile out of out of all of it, and gave us a it's like the leftovers. It's like the placenta, you know? It's like the part you don't want. They, they kept the kid and gave you the, the, the leftover. None of the actors were particularly good. None of them were particularly horrible, but none were particularly good. None of the characters are interesting. All of the depth is missing. The motivation is missing. There's just nothing here for me to give it better than a five on. That's about as good as I can do. Yeah. Best I can do. Right. <laughs> I was going to give it a four. I'm going to give it a five just because the production value was pretty decent, but that's that's about it. Okay, well, I'm going to go next, Steve. I'm going to give this movie 6 out of 10 Jonathan Davis scalping tickets in front of a CD concert hall in L.A. (laughs) I have a lot of nostalgia for this movie. I say that, I think, on every fucking movie we do nowadays, but that's a factor. The thing is, Steve, I used to think this was the coolest fucking thing ever made. It's really hard to detach myself 
from these uh, high school thoughts I had. No, I can I, understand. I that. can I can do it to some extent, but you know I I still like Aaliyah in this movie. I know that's controversial. Right. Unlike you, I mourn her death. Oh, hey, hey, whoa, whoa, no, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying anything defaming about Aaliyah as a person. That was very sad. That was very sad. You know, I, I think she was. I, her music was pretty cool. I, I like some of it. You know, she was. Uh, she certainly did something unique in this movie, and uh, she is sexy as all hell in it. Uh, Stuart Townsend is fucking a ham, in my opinion. He in this is. movie, he's a huge ham. Like he is trying so hard to be sexy, and it just so contradicts the interview with the vampire, like the naturalness to those performances. Yeah, uh, it's just it's a little forced. It, but I'm gonna keep going back and yeah. forth. I like some of the music. Even though some of it hasn't aged well, some of it I definitely am like not into. I don't like the Manson song, but you know some of the ones I do like. I like Forsaken, the David Drayman version. I like the change, the chest, uh, the Deftones, and the oh, uh, that's, yeah, that's the song. Chester Bennington song that he sings. And aside from a really, really disappointing third act, there is uh, some interest from me when I'm watching this movie. Right, kind of like going through the stats, human life, then when he just quickly turn into a vampire the journal stuff and i'm like i'm getting interested i'm getting interested it does kind of shit at the end it's just like okay and a big fight happens it was definitely the most interesting and engaging mm. part of the film i can't argue with you about that i like seeing lestat kind of like shred on a fucking violin like he just needs a guitar you know like there's no electric guitars in the 1700s but goddamn, if there was he'd be ripping nobody can rip gypsy music like lestat <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway that's all i got to say Josh, on any rating scale you want, what are you going to give Queen of the Damned? Well, you guys were way more generous than I'm going to be. Uh, I'm going to give this one interview with a vampire out of ten. I don't blame you. I don't blame you. <laughs> this movie's just so cringy at it times. Is. It, it, is it hasn't aged well at all. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I mean, I almost feel bad for giving her five. Enough <laughs> said. I mean, just fucking watch it if you don't believe me. Jonathan Davis. <laughs> or don't. There's a lot of good vampire movies out there you can watch. I want to say this, okay? I'm in a lot of uh, nostalgia groups on Facebook where people just jerk off to stuff they used to like, basically. And someone will just post a picture of a movie and everyone will be like, I love that movie, I love that movie. And it'll be the most asinine. It'll be fucking... What's that snowman movie you did a uh, video on? Jack God? Frost? It'll be fucking Jack Frost. Jack I swear to God. Frost, and people will yeah. be like, oh my God, I loved this movie when I was a kid. Any schlock piece of shit people just gush over in these kind of groups I'm in. The, the problem is when you like stuff as a kid, right? <laughs> yeah. You can't let go of it completely. This movie comes up a lot and everyone says the same thing. Great soundtrack. So people still like this movie for the soundtrack. I mean, I, I guess if you were a fan of Korn, I just disliked Korn so strongly, even when they were a current act, there's no way for me. If you get the soundtrack itself, Steve, Jonathan Davis sings on very few of the many songs on the soundtrack. Yeah, I, and the, the problem for me is it's more than just him. It's just that the music itself just doesn't do it for me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a product of its time. So it is. It I is. can see that. And that's kind of the point I'm driving at, is that like, People still are attached to this, and it's kind of, like, lame that they are. Also, Myself included. Jonathan Davis looks like a human marionette. There's something real weird about him. <laughs> He's not a handsome man. No, and it's not even that that I, like, I don't want to pick on somebody for not being handsome. I'm hardly the best-looking guy in any room, but, like, that's, that's, that's fucking A. <laughs> okay, we're going to bring back something uh, just this once. Oh, come on. No, not that. All right. <laughs> <laughs>
We could do that if you want. No, because you're just going to make up an answer. <laughs> no, they're going to bring back something else. Just this once. The hat. The hat. You know, I... Okay. All right, never mind. I was going to say there's one more movie I kind of want to add, but it's all right. It's too late, Steve. The hat has been made. But and Josh brought up Buffy, and it's so good. Steve, you cannot put your name oh, in the right. goblet of fire. Fine. Okay? Fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve is going to draw... A movie from the hat that's going to be our final entry in our Halloween horror-themed October movie review. He reviews. only does this so we can blame me if it's a bad one. <laughs> Steve, I'm, I'm just going to warn the audience. Steve signed off on all the movies in the hat No, right that's now. not necessarily true. Yes, he did. I, I Some of them are... No, I signed off in the sense that I was willing to do pods on them. That's true. I see. Yeah, not on their quality? Yeah, not necessarily in the movie, but I did agree to do recordings on all of them. Okay. Yes, that is true. <laughs> Needless to say, the the list is just a huge spectrum of shit. <laughs> all right. Well, some of it was pretty good. Some of these are good. Let's see. All right. What am I going to get? It's going to be something. I, of all the movies in here I want to see, I'm going to get the one I really don't. I guarantee it. All right. Here we go. Uh, That's the movie I hope it is. I know which one you're talking about. All right, you know what? We got From Hell. That's not bad. I like that movie. From Hell? Yeah. That's nice. a good one. That actually is a really good one. We're going to like talking about this. All right. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Great. It's going to be great to discuss this actor and director combo. I don't think we've gotten to do that quite enough on this podcast, so I am excited for this. Based on a really good graphic novel. So, yeah. More on that to come. Josh, I want to thank you for being a guest on this podcast, and I would like you to tell the listeners what you do and where they can find you. You can find me at Review Inc., or uh, type review D-O-O-D into your search bar. Got to really work on that dyslexia, buddy. <laughs> really shit, right? But the doctors say, you know, <laughs> one day. We're just hoping, you know. And I, I just make fun of movies. Let's let's put it that way. Absolutely. And Josh has made... very funny. Josh has made a very awesome video for this podcast, which I would really love you listeners to go and check out. It's on our... Three Ninjas Kickback podcast that we did. Josh made a highlight video of that specific to YouTube. This is a video, unlike most of our podcasts, which are just audio only. Hilarious, amazingly well done. And Josh, I cannot thank you enough for doing that. It's YouTube. Oh, thank you, sir. So you better get on. <laughs> Hello. So I have a message for you, the listeners, and a request. If you like what you hear, leave us a positive rating and written review on Apple Podcasts. That's the best thing you can do for this podcast. So if you like us, if you're interested in supporting us, you don't have to pay us a dime. Use your iPhone. Find someone with an iPhone. Leave us a positive rating and written review. Five stars. Also, give us a thumbs up on YouTube. Leave us a comment. Subscribe to us on YouTube. All that good stuff. But of course, the first thing I mentioned is the most important thing you can do for us. We appreciate it immensely. I thank you, Steve, for coming on, as always, making the trip out here. Josh, as always, thank you for coming on and being willing to discuss such classics as Queen of the Damned and many others that we've been doing. Guys, Josh needs to be on more often because Josh and I agree about stuff and that's good for me. Yes, Steve (laughs) needs that positive reinforcement in his life. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. It's been an awesome podcast. We love you and good night.
Hello and welcome to Big Dumb Movie, where we discuss movies of the Big Dumb variety. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm joined today by my friend, Steve. And secondly, my other good friend. Hi, it's me, Tommy Wiseau, star of The Room, here to talk about vampire movie. Yeah. Yeah. In one of the books in Lestat, he had been asleep for a while. But uh, in the movie, they, they say that he's basically been hibernating for like 200 years. And that he did so more or less because he got bored with the world and wanted to just go to sleep for a while until things had changed enough to be interesting to him. What I find interesting about movie is the stat is vampire. Right. Very interesting choice for vampire movie. She is a member of the Talamasca, <laughs> who is not really explained in this movie, so I'm just going to go based off not having read the books and what I see in the movie, which is they investigate the supernatural. I don't like scene because there is no vampire. I wanted Johnny to be vampire in my movie, The Room. Step aside, Superman, we now have the most iconic romantic flight scene of all time. You know, I have a feeling you're going to disagree with me, which is fine. But if I'm being honest, I'd rather be Lestat than Superman. I'd rather be the vampire. I agree with Steve. I want to be vampire. You want to be vampire with me, Steve? Steve? You want to be vampire with me, Steve? Uh. And, and, he, and, you know, they're up in the daylight and they're discussing what the world will be like when the two of them rule everything. And that just, it just got blood out of it. Like, nothing's there. You know, Steve, if a lot of vampires love each other, the world would be a better place. Yeah. Anyway. And there's a story about, a real life story, a guy named Alan Menzies. He was in his 20s. Oh. He was in Scotland. He killed his best friend right. and drank his blood. He stabbed the dude 42 fucking times. And he says that he was ordered to do that by Akasha from this movie. <laughs> what the story? Five is the best I can do. Five is the best I can do. That's a big dumb movie. Betray me. <laughs> I'm fed up with this world. Oh, boy.